Good morning. Hey, if you have your Bible, you can get it open. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. We are finishing up 1 Corinthians today, and we launch into 2 Corinthians chapter 1 starting next week. So if you want to read ahead, that's where we are. We're going. Um, while you're turning there, let me give you two quick announcements. Two weeks from today, we have what we call our starting point gathering. Starting point is a time uh, we serve a home-cooked meal. We provide child care. It's a time for you as a family to kind of really dive in a little deeper to find out more about New Hope. If you're new here or if you've been here for a while and you haven't gone through this, uh, at starting point, you have an opportunity to sit with myself, some of the staff, some of the elders, and we're going to walk you through the history of our church, the vision where we feel God's leading us, the beliefs, what it looks like to become a member, how to get plugged in and serve, what D groups look like around here. It's a great opportunity, and so you can register for Starting Point, and we would look forward to having you join us uh, at the next time we gather together here in two weeks. In addition to that, right after this service, going into third service today, uh, we have a discipleship group call-out meeting. And so you would go, Student Center, am I correct? Please confirm. Yes, Student Center. Uh, you will go down to the Student Center, and uh, you will learn more about discipleship groups, why they are an important part of our church family. It's not a commitment. So when you go into this meeting, you're not signing up for a group. You won't come out of it with a whole group of new friends, and now you're stuck with them. That's not how it works. You're just going to go in and learn, like, what are groups? How do they work? Why? What do we want to know about them? And then you can make a decision after that about where you want to go. So that's right after this service. You can head down to the student center to be a part of that. So let me pray for us as we open God's word, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you. So much for this moment. My prayer is that we can slow down just, just a little bit today. We can open up our minds and our hearts to hear from you. And so, God, we come to you knowing that you're sovereign and in control. And we ask you for this simple blessing. Would you speak to us today? We ask you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the early 1500s, a Polish astronomer, uh, my people, all right, let that sink in, uh, uh, named Nicholas Copernicus, discovered that we are not at the center of the universe. Up until that time, it was believed that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around it. And then during the Copernican revolution, what took place was uh, we discovered that the sun is the center of the universe. We had a new center and it was the sun and everything revolved around it. Now, when Jesus saves you, when you become a Christian, a very similar thing takes place in your life. When you begin to follow the Lord, you have a new center. Before that, everything and everyone revolved around you, right? Before that, my opinion is what mattered the most, my input, me getting my say in certain situations. Everybody was around to kind of meet my needs. The entire world revolved around me, and then I met Jesus. You have a similar story if you're a follower of Christ, and he began to do a work in my life and in my heart similar to the one he's doing in yours if you're a Christian. And it was to show you that, no, you are not, in fact, the center of the universe. Man is not the center of the world. You have a new center, and that new center is Jesus. And everyone and everything in your life revolves around him. But here's the thing. That's not an easy lesson to learn, is it? It's a very difficult lesson. In fact, I think it's one of the most challenging parts of parenting, to be honest is I'm trying to teach my kids that the world does not revolve around them while at the same time learning that it doesn't revolve around me. <laughs> it's a pretty difficult exchange back and forth. And throughout our lives, certain things take place, at least in my life they have, and I'm sure in your life they have too, where you have these moments where the right person at the right time said the right thing, and it changed things for you. It became what we'll call a reference point. 
this moment in your life where the fog lifted, things got a little bit more clear. You began to see what it looks like for Jesus to be at the center of your life and for everything in your life to revolve around him. And these reference points come throughout our life if we're willing to pay attention to them. These moments that we can look back on and they echo in our heart. They become a point where we can look back and say, yes, I remember. Yes, that is true. Now I can stand firm on this understanding of the world. My favorite example, one of my favorite examples of this in the Bible comes in the life of Joshua. Joshua was an understudy of Moses in your Old Testament. Moses had led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. The end of the book of Deuteronomy tells us that Moses laid hands on Joshua. Joshua had this new ministry. Moses was not going to lead the people into the promised land. It was going to fall to Joshua. This long journey with these difficult people for 40 years, and Moses wasn't going to be the one leading them into this promised land. It was promised to them 40 years before, and now Joshua has this burden where he has to pick it up and lead the people in, and he feels this pressure to be the leader of God's people, and it's not easy to be the leader of God's people leading them into this promise that's 40 years in the making. And then a reference point comes at the beginning, Joshua chapter 1, the first nine verses, three different times, where the Lord reminds him, be strong and courageous. It culminates there in verse 9, where it says, have I not told you? Have I not commanded you, Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, because I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I'm going to be with you everywhere you go. It becomes a reference point. This is a moment in Joshua's life where the fog lifted, and he began to realize I don't lead these people in my strength. I lead them in the strength of the Lord who's going to go with me. This is my reference point. This is a point now that will echo in his heart for many years to come and a point where he'll look back and remember this truth that he had learned that will help him stand firm as the leader of God's people for many years to come. And we can see evidence of this reference point in his life echoing over and over again in his heart when you get to chapter 24, verse 15. You know, the verse that's all over uh, coffee mugs and calendars all over the place. The one that we put on the bottom of our email, don't undo it. Don't feel bad if that's you. But Joshua's able to look out at the people and says, if following the Lord is undesirable to you, if doing the godly thing is not something that you want to do, that's fine. Then choose this day whom you will serve. But because of a reference point that took place early on in his ministry, he'll say this, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. A reference point. And he received a reference point, and he was able to offer them in the lives of other people. These reference points, they change us. They change us. Sam Rayburn was, uh, politically speaking, he was a, the Speaker of the House for 17 years, the longest tenure in U.S. history. 17 years. Arguably one of the most powerful men in Washington during his tenure. A bill did not uh, go to vote without passing by him. He served uh, 24 terms as a member of Congress, but he never lost touch with his roots. See, he grew up in a 40-acre cotton farm with 10 siblings in Flag Springs, Texas. They were dirt poor. He headed off to college at East Texas Normal College. He didn't have enough money for a bag to put his clothes in. And so he took his shirt, and he put his clothes in his shirt, and he folded up his shirt around his clothes and tied it off with a rope, and that's how he was going to travel to go to college, dirt poor. He talks about remembering how on his way to the train station where the train would pick him up and take him to college, Really, no words were spoken between him and his dad. Father and son didn't really exchange much. But as the train pulled into the station to take Sam to college and for him to leave home, his dad reached into his pocket and pulled out a fistful of money. And Sam writes, man, only, only the Lord knows how he saved that kind of money. We were so poor. We had no money. We had only enough to make it 
day by day. He says, it broke me up, him handing me that $25. I often wondered what he did without, what sacrifice he and my mother made. He said, just before a teary-eyed Sam received that money and got on the train to leave home, his dad looked at him and said four words that would echo in his life for the remainder of his life. Four words that he said were his reference point that changed him forever, that when times got tough, he could look back. This was a reference point in his life. And his dad said these four words, be a man, Sam, be a man. A reference point. We all have them. If I were to sit and talk to you, you could tell me about moments in your life where the right person at the right time said the right thing and it lifted the fog and changed perhaps even the trajectory of your entire life. The Bible's full of them. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, most scholars will tell you that Paul's just dealing with some housekeeping items. And they're right, he is. I mean, this is a chapter that's easy to just read through and get on your way. Paul's going to deal with some financial conversation about a financial need that needs to be met. He's going to share his itinerary with the church. And he's going to share some hopes for their future a little bit. And he's going to greet, send some greetings from multiple other churches their way and just try to encourage them as he closes out this letter. But snuck right in the middle of the housekeeping items, right there in the middle, there's a reference point. It's two verses that kind of summarize the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Two verses where Paul kind of slips in a reference point, a, a point where they can look back to. He slips in sharing his heart. A moment that hopefully for them will become their be strong and courageous, their Joshua moment, or maybe their train station moment where Paul's handing them his heart. And he's saying, be a man. We're going to start with those verses. And we're going to get that reference point, And then we're going to go back and look at the housekeeping items that Paul addresses because they're seeping with Paul's character throughout them. And we're going to see how do we learn what it looks like to apply this reference point to our own lives? How can we take hold of a reference point today where things might change for us? 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. Here's that reference point. Paul says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Let me read that one more time. Be on your guard, church. Stand firm in the faith church. Be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. What a reference point, right? What a command. This is their be strong and courageous moment, literally. Paul's closing out a letter trying to tell them what it looks like for them to have a reference point that they can look back to when times get tough, and they can stand firm, and they can be courageous, not passive, but active with their faith. Can I be honest with you? This is a really challenging two verses for me. Why? Because oftentimes we read our Bible and we make assumptions in our head and in our hearts that we already know what it means to stand firm and we move on. But I'm seeing a trend in our culture that is anything but standing firm and being strong in the faith. My son participated in a, and I'm going to be passionate. Uh, Welcome to New Hope today. All right. My son was on a travel basketball uh, team this year, and we got to go to different places and watch basketball, and uh, it, was, it was good. It was a good family time. And we'd go to these games, and, and I, I was just completely blown away, because you know about it. We talk about it. You understand what the sports culture is doing to young people in our country, but when you see it firsthand at a highly competitive level, it blows your mind. I'm talking parents yelling across the court at coaches about their kids' playing time. I'm talking parents trash-talking the kids, kids on other teams, yelling at them. Parents who claim to be Christians yelling at their kid about what they need to do better in the middle of a game, putting the pressure and the weight of the world on those kids' shoulders. And I sat back and I thought to myself all summer, over and over again, it is very clear to me in very vivid way who 
your God is. It is the success of your child in the sport that they play. That's just one example. That's just, just one example about why this is such a challenging thing for me. Here's the point. We live currently in a very passive, never challenge, never confront, never call up or encourage someone to grow culture. A world where everybody gets a participation trophy and nobody's ever expected to work through their disappointment and failure. When my son messes up, when my kids make a mistake, I want them to work through the mistake. I want them to learn from the mistake. If they don't get playing time, I don't want to blame the coach. I want to work with my child about how to get more playing time, how to develop their character. But we live in a world that says, no, don't do that. A world that tells them to be passive, not to be active to go with the current trend and the current tide of, of, of all, all the culture that's around them and to never challenge them to grow and to step up and to stand firm. And here's the deal. If we're not careful, we're going to have an entire generation of people who grow up with no reference point. No reference point. No place to look back and see where the Lord had lifted the fog through the right person at the right time saying the right thing so now they can see clearly and they know the trajectory and the vision of their life. And they're going to be aimless walking around with no direction. I'm sorry I sound passionate, but I am. We're missing out. We need a generation of godly men and godly women who will step up, get uncomfortable, who will grow. Who will grow. They'll hit their reference point head on so the Lord can do a work in them and we can hand off a legacy of faithfulness. The Bible's clear on this. The Bible is. It's clear. You read through your New Testament, and it is. We come to different passages. Now, Paul's clear. I'm not talking about waging a war on the culture. Please hear me. That's not where my heart is. We're not into, we do everything in love. But Paul said, do everything in love. But before, while he also said that, he also said, stand firm, be on guard, be strong, be courageous, be brave. And the Bible is chocked full of this. Let's just do a quick survey. Let's just look at a few different things in your New Testament of this challenge. Look at how Paul writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6, verse 11. He says this, put on the full armor of God. That doesn't sound passive to me. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You have a very real enemy. You are in a very real spiritual war. And if you're passive, you lose. If you give in, to not standing firm, and you just go with the cultural tide that's around you, you lose. You lose. And so instead, put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the enemy who is coming for you. Look at how Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9. He says, resist him, resist the enemy. Stand firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings, meaning you are not suffering alone. You are not fighting this battle by yourself. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which we looked at last week, Paul wrote these words, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We know who wins. We know who wins this battle that we're in. And take heart in knowing the end of the battle so you can stand firm in the middle of it. Philippians 1.27, perhaps my favorite, as Paul writes to a mostly group of retired Roman soldiers who had become Christians and populated the church in Philippi, and he writes these words to them. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live a life that is worthy for the rest of the world to point at you and say, that's a Christian. And I know that because of the way they're living their life. Then when I come to you and I see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you what? That you stand firm, stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The Bible's clear. 
as believers in Jesus, we stand firm. We do so in love. We're kind. We're patient. We don't rush. We're not overwhelming to everybody around us, but at the same time, we're not pushovers, and we're not going to get bullied by a culture that tells us not to stand firm for the gospel. The Bible's clear. Stand firm, be strong, be courageous. And here's the thing. Verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 16, they're not there on accident. They didn't just slip in. They're kind of the heartbeat of the whole letter. They're a call for us to step up and to do hard things, to be strong and to be courageous. That's where Paul's heart is. Be strong, be courageous. Don't let your guard down. Stay awake, stay alert. The enemy's real. The moment you put your guard down and you get passive, he will defeat you. Now, he's going to give us a few things, but here's where my heart is. One of the things that matters most to me in the world, and I'm not perfect at it, so I don't need you to remind me about that. I, I know I'm not perfect, okay? And, and it's good. I know I'm not, and I'm okay with not being perfect. But here's the thing. My heart beats for the development of godly character. I want to be the kind of man that passes on a godly legacy to my family. And in my, my story, I don't have that to look back at. Many of you do. You've been given the, the, the burden, the godly good burden to hand on a legacy that's already been handed to you of faithfulness. And I praise God. There's many families in the church here at New Hope that have that. I'm not one of them. I'm the first chain in a new, uh, first link in a new chain of faithfulness. And I get it. But it's a passion of mine to watch my kids develop godly character so that one day my grandchildren will have that too. And we need this. And this is what Paul's getting at when he writes these two verses. They're so important for us to wrap our minds around. And then we're going to take a look at this housekeeping item. His, Paul's life was so full of godly character that it seeped through in all of his writings, even in housekeeping items like chapter 16. I mean, you just see it all throughout what he wrote. And so I want to pull a couple of things from these seemingly insignificant housekeeping items that will help us understand how we take this reference point of being uh, strong and courageous and standing firm and kind of apply it to our lives. The first one comes this way. It, understanding that, that godly character, it's not, it's not easy. So uh, please don't hear me as we go into these. It's not easy. I get it. it. It can be really hard. But here's what it's not. It's not complicated. Sometimes we mix up the two. Sometimes we say just because something's hard means it's all complicated. And I, I can't. No, it's simple. It's really simple. doesn't make it easy. But God's word gives us everything that we need to live the lives that God has called us to live. And so let's start off in the first four verses of chapter 16. And the first principle that I think we're going to see in these verses is this, to be consistent and keep it simple. Be consistent when it comes to standing firm and being strong and courageous and make sure that you keep it simple. He's going to use finances as a way of illustrating this. Here's what he says in verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, when I come no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Here's the thing. There's a financial need in the church in Jerusalem. There's a mix-up, uh, a debate over why that would have been in, in various ways. I personally think it's because they were so involved in planting other churches and people going out and planting these churches that now they needed those churches to also contribute to their ministry. And here's the simple part of it. Paul says, as a follower of Jesus, give. Doesn't make it easy. And he'll give us some pointers on why it's not always easy, but it is pretty simple. There's a financial need. And Paul's words here, standing firm, being strong and courageous, doing everything in love, means that our godly character compels us to participate financially in the work of the church. It just does. 
Now, he's going to give us a couple pointers. The first one comes in verse 2, where he says this, in keeping with his income. You might translate that better to say, to whatever extent one has prospered. Paul doesn't give a percentage. Paul doesn't give an exact amount that you're supposed to give. He just says everyone should give. And they should give based on how they've prospered. And what he's saying that for is this. Those who have prospered a lot, you're not off the hook by just giving a little bit. But those who have not prospered very much at all, you're not off the hook either by being able to not give anything. See, Paul doesn't ascribe it as just a certain percentage. And he does that on on purpose because a certain percentage might be burdensome to many of the poor while letting most of the middle and upper class off the hook too easily. You might look at this a little bit different in verse 2, and I think it supports the idea of what's called a graduated tithe, if you will. The more one prospers because of what the Lord has done in their life, the more they give. But everyone gives. Everyone should be a part of, of that. All people, we're all in the same boat, he says. And your character plays into that in your participation in what the Lord is doing in and through the church body. The other thing he says this, it's, it's the first day of the week. So on Sunday, there's this thing about giving when the church is gathered together. He says, when you guys are gathered together, there's, whether you're saving it up on your own to give one big thing or you're giving it weekly, he says, either way, when everybody in the church participates at the same time in financial giving, it's a beautiful thing. And he connects it to the regular gathering of the church because our stewardship is as much a part of our obedience and worship of God as much as prayer and hearing from his word and everything else as being good stewards of what he's entrusted to us with his goodness. And he's putting them all on equal playing field with this. Why? Because in Corinth, their temptation was the wealthier people could give more and therefore they could kind of buy their influence in the church. And he's saying, no, it's not how it works. Everybody plays a part in what God is doing in the church. Keep it simple. It's very simple. Not easy, but simple. When it comes to giving, stand firm, be strong and courageous, be brave and do everything in love. The second thing that I see in this housekeeping things that he deals with that ties us to this reference point is this idea of staying focused on the mission. Stay focused on the mission that God has given to us. You see this in verses 5 through 9. Here's what he writes. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of effective work is open to me and there are many who oppose me. Look, everything that the Apostle Paul did, everything he did was about making much of Jesus. His goal in life was to make Jesus famous in the big moments on the mountaintop and in the really mundane, seemingly insignificant everyday stuff of his life. His number one goal in every conversation, every letter that he wrote, every place that he visited, I just want to make Jesus famous. That's it. I want to make him well-known in the lives of every single person I interact with. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, every single person you interact with in your home, in your workplace, your community, your kids' school, sports teams, the church, and everywhere else, every single human being is one of two things. They're a follower of Jesus or they're not. They're a Christian or they're not a Christian. And God has entrusted you to be in their presence to represent him. I want to make the Christian grow deeper in their faith with the Lord, and I want to help the non-believer get a little bit closer to Jesus because of their interaction with me. Either way, I want Jesus to be made famous. And you can see this right here in this passage. He stayed focused. He says, I want to come and see you, but I want to be able to spend time with you. And notice how he says it. Does he say, does he say hey, but, but I think in the meantime, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because Ephesus is beautiful 
and I'm comfortable, guys, and I can work on me for a little bit, and you know, like, what you're doing there is good, but like, you should see this place. It is beautiful. There's all kinds of cultures passing through this city. I mean, I love the food that's served here. I can kind of sit back and chill. There's not a lot of accountability, and that's all right. I just really enjoy this time to work on me. No. He says, no, that's not it. I need to stay in Ephesus because a door for effective work has been opened to me, even though everyone around me doesn't like it. Even though the culture that's around me doesn't like the way I live. They don't like the values that I stand for. They don't like what I'm teaching. They don't like the decisions that I'm making. And they're pushing hard against me to cave in. But I'm going to stay here and I'm going to stand firm. And I'm going to be strong and courageous. And I'm going to do everything in love. But I need to stay here in Ephesus because this door has clearly been opened for me to be able to do effective work for God and make much of Jesus. That's what he says. But what about us? We're not in Ephesus, so at least most of us, there's two people in the room that will be soon, but the rest of us aren't. But what about us? Raising kids in a culture that says that they should be able to make all the decisions about their own life by the time they're five. You can't even decide what they want to do sex, with their sexuality as a parent. You can't decide where they want to go, what they want to study, what they want to be a part of. And I am saying it. I'm saying it out loud. To stand firm and to raise godly children is no light task in the culture we find ourselves in. And here's the thing. We can get, oh, yeah, yeah. But what about at home? What about when you get in the car and it's just you and the kids and you start talking about people? You gossiping? What kind of example are you setting? Look, here's the deal. When it comes to godly character with your children, more is caught than taught. They're watching and they're listening and they're picking up on the way that you live and the decisions that you make and the things that you invest in. And that character is being formed more by the life that you're living with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even more so than what you're saying. What you're saying is important. What you're doing is too. Will you stand firm? Give, not give in to those temptations? Will you be strong and courageous as a godly parent in this culture? Do everything in love. What about your marriage? Like, will you actually die to yourself? Give up preferences, give up desires that you have for you so that you can serve your spouse, will you? Because that's not popular in our culture. It's just like dating. You don't like being married? Go file for a no-fault divorce. Well, who cares? You just be done with it. Now, that's not saying that it's always bad. Like, there are biblical reasons to pursue. I get that. But a lot of times in our culture, it's just this passive nothing thing. And are we going to stand firm and let our, let our marriages look like a picture of the gospel as we die to ourselves and serve our spouses, standing firm, being strong and courageous? What about being radically generous instead of financially selfish? What about, what about serving other people, even when it feels like I might be getting made, t- taken advantage of, but I'm still going to serve. I'm going to be there, and I'm going to serve the people that are around me. Look, be strong and courageous, church. Stand firm. Keep your guard up. You've got a real enemy. Perhaps the most important part, not just keeping it simple and being consistent and and, and not just staying focused on the mission, perhaps the most important part comes next where Paul teaches us this truth. You cannot be strong and courageous, stand firm, keep your guard up and do everything in love by yourself. You cannot do this alone. You just can't. Look at how he lays this out. Look at verse 10. It says, when Timothy comes to see you, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with any contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. 
I strongly urge him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Jump down to verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they, were devoted, they devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaeus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. So does the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters here send your greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. We're not going to apply that last little part. I mean, I mean, maybe at home, but not, not everybody here, okay? Look, my father-in-law told me something fascinating as we were talking through this passage of scripture, which, by the way, happens a lot because you can't even preach alone, okay? You need people pouring into you. He said, if you study the life of the Apostle Paul, you'll notice that over 100 people were involved in helping him accomplish his goals and his mission. Let that sink in. You read through Paul's letters and Paul's life in the book of Acts, you find out that 100 different people were involved in his ministry. What do you think about it? Like, if the Apostle Paul, who apart from Jesus, had the most successful ministry in the history of the church, needed that many people to help him accomplish his ministry, do you really think that you can accomplish the ministry that God has for your home and your community alone. It's not possible. We are called to stand firm together. We are called to be strong and courageous in one spirit, united for the sake of the gospel. We are called to gather together to lean into our Christian community that is around us. This is why Paul says, I want Apollos to come to you. He hasn't come yet, but he's going to come. I'm sending Timothy your way. Oh, and by the way, I want you to know there's an entire church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's home, and they are cheering for you. They are rallying around you. And when times get hard, you need to know you're not by yourself. You've got a whole body of believers who, even though they're not there in Corinth with you, they are cheering you guys on. You can't do this alone. Let me close out this way. I remember the very first time that I saw the movie Saving Private Ryan. I don't know. Maybe you haven't seen this um, it's one of the harder movies I ever watched in my life at the time. Perhaps one of the hardest opening scenes I've ever seen as those brave U.S. soldiers stormed the beaches of Normandy. In fact, it was so vivid. It was the first time I got a taste, just a taste of, of a visual of what real war is, is like. These brave soldiers charged this beach, and, and on the beaches of uh, Omaha, they were killed. So many of them were killed. The Nazis were perched in elevated positions, forcing these soldiers to charge an open beach with explosions and gunfire firing all over the place. And I ask myself, what is it that makes somebody capable of doing that? Like giving themselves to that so freely to say, I'm going, I'm charging, strong and courageous, here I go. How do they do it? Who, who am I to answer that, first of all? I don't know. But if you watch the movie... As the movie progresses, you get at least one small answer. After they've charged the beaches in Normandy, this small group of soldiers is tasked with finding one soldier and bringing him home, one soldier in particular, Private Ryan. And their goal is to find him because his three other brothers had been killed in action, and the State Department did not want to report to his mother that her only living child had also been killed in action as well. And so they go looking for him. Well, when they find him, after they find Private Ryan, surprise, he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to go. He wants to stay and fight. And here's why he says these words. He says, you can tell my mother that when you found me, I was with the only brothers I had left. 
And there was no way I was deserting them. I think she'd understand that. So here's the answer. For some of these soldiers, they, particularly Private Ryan in this, this movie, he was capable of doing this because of the camaraderie, the brotherhood. For so many of them, those who gave their lives so freely, they were able to go and do what they never could do on their own. They could do it because they were together, because they had a brother by their side. This is why we call them a band of brothers. They had a connection. They knew that no matter how bad it got, I was never fighting on my own. I was never standing firm. I was never being strong and courageous by myself. I was always with my brothers. And here's the thing, church. The same exact thing is true in the Christian life. We are not called to storm the beaches in Normandy. I get it. But we are called to actively get into a very real battle. We are called to push up against passivity in our homes. We are called to push up against passivity as a church family and a culture that's pushing heavily on us. We are called to stand firm, but never alone. Never by ourselves. Always together with people that will stand with you, who will provide reference points that you can look back on, people who will be your brother or your sister in Christ that will become a band of brothers and sisters who will charge with you as you bravely and courageously move forward. And I think it's time for the church to step up. I think it's time for the church to push, push back against passivity. I think it's time, it's time for us to allow our lives to be more transformed by the gospel. I think it's time for our marriages to look like a better picture of the gospel. I think it's time that we realize that we can't do it alone anymore, that we have to be open and vulnerable and confess our sins so that he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins so that we can grow closer together as we stand firm with one another. And here's the thing, I get it. If this seems very undesirable to you, like something, man, I'm out, I don't, this is too much. I, I'm, if this is undesirable to you, then here's the thing. You choose today whom you will serve. But as for me in this house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, I'm so incredibly humbled and grateful. With all my heart, I mean it. God, we come before you. I'm not just praying to transition. I know people are coming out on stage, and it's, it, we're coming before a holy God who's really in this room right now. You're really with us here right now, and you hear us praying to you, pouring out our heart to you. And we live in this culture that's really hard to stand firm. And we need reference points, reminders like we get in your word to stand firm and to be strong and courageous and to do all of it with love and to remember that we're never alone. But we can't do it without your power flowing through us. And so today I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that gives us the strength to stand when all we want to do is crumble. And Father, I'm so grateful in my own life, and I know so many will echo this prayer for the, the faithful men and women who've given me these reference points throughout my life who have helped me stand firm when all I've wanted to do is crumble. God, may we be a group of people who stand firm, who are strong, who are courageous, who are brave, who do everything in love with the goal of making Jesus famous. And we ask you for this. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said.